This is a special Walker Cup episode from the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. The finest amateurs from Great Britain, Ireland, and the United States will face each other on May 8th and 9th at one of the most iconic golf clubs in the world. We know the teams, but a certain mystique surrounds the venue, Seminole Golf Club. In the next few weeks, you'll hear stories from Seminole members, former Walker Cup captains, USGA officials, and other special guests. These are the Seminole Sessions, a preview to the 2021 Walker Cup match. And now, your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome everyone to the Seminole Sessions here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast, a series of preview episodes focused on the 2021 Walker Cup to be contested on May 8th and 9th at Historic Seminole Golf Club. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. Before we get to our first episode in the series, and it's a big one, special thanks to Mitch Phillips, who has provided the intro to every single episode here at the back of the range since day one. Mitch has done voiceover work for Fox, Showtime, NASCAR, HBO. He's done it all. So thank you to Mitch and all that he does here at the back of the range. I have several special episodes in this series that will lead you directly into the Walker Cup. You'll learn a little bit about the guests themselves and their incredible careers in the game, but you'll see that each episode gives some insider information on Seminole Golf Club. You might learn about what it is like to be a member there. You might learn a little bit about what the Walker Cuppers are going to face at Seminole during the matches, and you'll also pick up some interesting history on the Walker Cup itself. The episodes are going to be released at a rapid pace, so stay subscribed in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. How do you start a series like this? How would you kick things off? Well, you want to make sure that the first guest has a solid playing resume, a solid amateur career. In fact, since the Walker Cup is the pinnacle of amateur golf, perhaps it would be best to find a career amateur. All right, I think we have those boxes checked, but a lot of great amateurs can check that box. So what about a relationship to the Walker Cup? Did he play in one, two? Was he a captain? And look, these are the Seminole sessions. The first guest has to have some knowledge of Seminole Golf Club. Well, Vinny Giles checks all of those boxes, and quite frankly, he checks more boxes than you could possibly fathom. 1972 U.S. Amateur Champion. 1975 British Amateur Champion four-time Walker Cupper, victorious captain in 1993, and oh yes, he's a member of Seminole Golf Club. Now, I've left a few stats and accolades out, which you'll soon discover throughout this episode. It's an honor to open the Seminole Sessions with my guest, Mr. Vinny Giles. Vinny, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Thanks, Ben. I'm glad we finally got to got around to doing this. Well, this is a perfect time. We're sitting here. Uh, I mean, this is this is Masters Week when we're recording this. You're no stranger to that place. And then we have the Walker Cup coming in next month to to your uh, to your winter spot at Seminole. Uh, I'm I'm guessing this is a pretty uh, pretty good time to be Vinnie Giles right about now. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. I miss being at Augusta. I think I. Uh, I went to the Masters, I guess, from nineteen early 1960s all the way up until really uh, last year when, of course, we couldn't go. Right. And uh, didn't go this year just because of restrictions and, and what have you. But, sure. uh, you know, 
miss that. It looks like that's going to be a great week. And, and I think that, you know, I know everybody's excited that Jordan Spieth looks like he's found some mojo again. Yeah. And uh, that'll add a lot to that week. Weather, weather forecast looks good. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's the golf. It's golf is great. As, as you know, I mean, golf is on a real high, uh, worldwide. And, um, uh, and that, you know, with the, with the masters this week, which is always sort of the first right of spring. And then, and then Seminole hosting the Walker cup in what a month, really. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a good time to be in and around golf. Well, you mentioned that you've been in every Masters since the 60s. Uh, I don't want people to think that you just somehow are able to get tickets every year. You've played in nine Masters, made the cut in three of them. And, um, you know, we're, we're talking here, like I said, on, on a Tuesday. And, you know, last night was the amateur dinner where you had uh, Joe Long, the British amateur champion, uh, joining uh, Osborne and Strafacci. And, you know, I could, we could fill up a whole episode of me asking you favorite shots and favorite rounds over your, your years of playing in the Masters. But as a lifelong amateur, you know what these amateurs are going to be going through at the Masters this week. What are one of your fondest memories of not just on the golf course? We can pick out different shots, like I said, but what's something that the amateur really gets to cherish during a week at the Masters? Well, when you go back to my time, and my first Masters was 1968, um, and, you know, back then, I have to say, I mean, it's different today. One, you know, amateurs are different today. I mean, we had career amateurs. We had Bill Campbells and Billy Joe Pattons and Bill Heinemans, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of, the, a lot of those guys played in the Masters over that period of time. But more importantly, it was, yeah, it was like a big vacation for us. Sure. Um, my first year I was in law school and, uh, hadn't played any golf and hadn't, uh, you know, I really hadn't, hadn't even come close to playing any, in no competitive golf at all, because it was one, it was wintertime in Charlottesville, Virginia. And secondly, uh, you know, I wasn't the world's greatest student. I had to study. Okay. Um, okay. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a digress a little bit, but, um, I was playing, we, we had Saturday classes at Virginia law school and I was planning to jump in the car as soon as Saturday classes were over and uh, take off for Augusta, hopefully get down there, you know, maybe even time to play nine holes. Cause I figured I had to go learn how to play golf all over again. <laughs> Nice place um, to figure that out. Yes, it is. I woke up Thursday morning, uh, being two days before Saturday, and told my wife, I said, I can't stand it any longer. I'm gone. Uh-huh. And I threw my stuff in my little little uh, Ford Mustang and hit the road for Augusta. I think I was on the, uh, on the first tee about 3 o'clock that afternoon. Sure. We played, Ben, we used to play. 36 holes a day we'd play the par three two or three times and it was you know it was like going to camp right um i mean they let us stay in the clubhouse they served us breakfast they charged us a dollar for breakfast a dollar for lunch two dollars for dinner and a dollar a night for our room um, which was, you know, I mean, just delightful. You eating, you know, you eating five star food at, at uh, no star prices. Right. And, um, you know, as I say, it really was like a vacation and 
Of course, the USGA came along a few years later and said, oh, that's not, uh, that's not proper pricing. You all have to start charging a, a, a normal uh, rate. So, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be jeopardizing their amateur status. Um, but, yeah, it was just it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it was fun until Thursday morning. And I mean, I remember, I mean, I can remember the two most nervous times I've ever had on a golf course. I'm standing on the first tee at Augusta Thursday morning and it's, uh, you know, it's my first masters. It's a flawless day, probably 75 degrees and light breeze. And I look down, I'm getting, I'm announced on the tee and I look down, my pants look like it was a hurricane blow. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, and and funny that we're talking about the Masters and then the Walker Cup. I mean, the second most nervous I ever was was standing on the first tee in my first Walker Cup, and I was actually the first American player to hit a shot. And you know, the flag went up and yeah. the anthem was played, etc. And I, you know, and it was, I mean, it was great, but it was, I was, I won't say I was scared to death, but I, but I was not totally calm, either. right? Um, and those, you know, those are, those are things that, that you remember. And as I said, I can't remember ever. I mean, nerves are, you know, if you're playing good golf, nerves are fine. I mean, you want nerves, but you want good nerves. You want butterflies more than anything else. And that's kind of what I felt in both cases. I couldn't wait to go out and play, but I knew, you know, I, I knew it was going to be quite an experience. So. Yeah. Well, you, you got to benefit from a really nice perk where, uh, you know, you won the U.S. Amateur in 1972, and I think, gosh, I'm, I think that was just pretty recently that they stopped doing this, but any, you know, United States Amateur champion that kept their amateur status was always invited back to play the Par 3 contest every year. Yeah, so that's get, correct. So I'm guessing yep. that's kind of how you were able to keep coming back year after year. Uh, I don't have, the, I don't have the record. Do you have a hole in one on the par three course? Never made a hole. Oh. No, no, no. Uh, but yeah, to, just to, again, uh, go back a little bit. One sure. of the reasons, one of the reasons that, that, uh, you know, that I was there every year was because of our business. You know, we we're representing every year. We had at least five, six, seven clients playing in the master. Sure. And, uh, and quite honestly, being springtime and, and what have you, it was kind of deal week for us. I mean, we did pretty good amount of business down there. Sure. Because you had all the international people there. They were looking to line up players to come to, uh, you know, the UK, um, to Europe, uh, to Japan. Um, and back then, you know, they paid appearance fees. It was nothing like what they pay today, but, uh, right. You know, back then the guys weren't making that much money, so somebody would give them a twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar appearance fee and pay all the expenses to go to, let's say, to Tokyo to play in the Dunlop Phoenix. Right. You know, they were all in on it, so it was a it was a busy week. But that had a lot to do with why I was there every year, not so much the part three. But but you're right. Up up until a couple of years ago, the honor, what they called us was honorary invitees. Right, right. If you stayed amateur uh, and had won the U.S. Uh, U.S. Amateur or the British Amateur, you were invited to to uh, to come. 
Well, and another thing too that you're able to do is that well, the Walker Cup teams were invited to to they got a spot in the Masters. I think probably until about 1990. I think it was. Uh, I don't know how long it went on, but but it it did, and the, and the World Amateur Team, right? Of course, was a four man team, but yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, I mean, Bobby Jones when he uh, founded Augusta National, he very much wanted amateurs to be involved. And it wasn't until uh, fairly far along, I think actually Dean Beeman was the uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour, who who sort of sort of made his record as an amateur, quite honestly. Yeah. But he and I think Howard Harden got together and said, "Well, these amateurs yeah. aren't that good, and they're taking up space, so we need more pros in the tournament." Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't. It was Howard Harden. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the field has ever, they've been, what, in the low hundreds maybe a couple of times? Yeah, I think it's 88, 89 this year, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, normally it runs in the in the night, no, no more than 90, 95 players. I don't know who they thought was cluttering it up, but uh, <laughs> anyway, you know. Well, I think it's good to, to have the amateurs there. You, um, I, you know, this is kind of a question that still applies to, I mean, all the people that listen to this podcast, a lot of them are, you know, guys that have a nine to five job or, you know, women that have a nine to five job, they're trying to get the most out of their game. How did you balance law school? And then you referenced your, your business. You started, you know, Pros Incorporated, which you were representing players. How did you balance managing you know, players on the PGA tour, you know, you had to get your law degree, but you've won numerous Virginia titles and, and USAM and, and just, there's so many different titles that you've won. How, how were you able to balance everything and still play good golf? Well, I think part of it was probably, I think I was, I've always been blessed with a pretty simple golf swing. It's not one that's, you know, not one that's going to get way out of whack. Um, and I was able to, I was able to practice some when I wanted to. I mean, in the afternoons, in the evenings, um, I played a very limited schedule, actually my whole life. I mean, I played in, I never played in a Western amateur. I never, I played in one, one, uh, Sunny Hannah, I played in one Northeast, but in August, I was able to really, you know, really focus a lot on playing golf because you had the, I played in the Porter Cup, the Eastern Amateur and the U.S. Uh, amateur all in, you know, all in about a four week period. Sure. And that's when I really did my most damage because I could tell by the time the U.S. Amateur was over, um, I mean, I could tell I'd gotten I'd gotten two to three shots around better than I probably was in June. Gotcha. So this is and, almost like you just you just crunched everything into one small uh, small yeah. period of time and just, you yeah. just went at it. Yeah. I mean, it was really reps. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it, but the you know the the record that I guess about the best record that I, that I guess I could be proud of is in a seven year period from. 1967 through 773, I had one finish in the U.S. Amateur outside of the top three, <laughs> and that was the sixth in right. uh, 1970. I mean, every other time it was either, you know, first, second, third. Um, I mean, all those other years. So, 
And and the thing, I'm glad you mentioned that because again, you you won the you won it in '72, and that was the final year that the U.S. Amateur was actually a stroke play event. Yeah. And you know, most people listening, you know, are are you know around my age or possibly younger, they're saying, "Well, wait a minute." You know, I think of the U.S. Amateur. I think of you know the 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 match play duels. You know, Tiger against Marucci and Tiger against Scott and tons of other ones. You know, Doc Redman beating Gim at LECC and all these different ones or Riviera. And, uh, but there was stroke play at a time and people are thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought the USAM was always match play, but you know, I mean, you definitely have thoughts and experiences on, on playing both where it was match play yep. and stroke play. So I think I'm correct. You, you, you believe it should be stroke play. Is that right? Uh, well, my, my, I love match play. I, match play is great, but okay. my, my theory, and I and I will stick to it. I, the USGA, I got a little sideways with them about it, because sure. they didn't didn't like my comments. But if you look, if you go back, it look been from sixty five, which was the first uh, match uh, stroke play year, Bob Murphy won. From 65 through 72, if you looked at the top 10 finishers, you could probably say that six of those 10 were in what, what you'd call your pre-tournament favorites. Gotcha. If you go look at the quarter finalists in match play over all the years and the couple of, I won't mention any names, but fluke winners, uh, you will see a lot of a lot of uh, disparity between that and the stroke play. Sure. When you're talking about your national championship, and especially today when there, are, well, there's safely 300 great college players. Right. Um, you know, you and I go play a match, and 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 I shoot 66, and you shoot 65, and I'm on the way home, and we're in the top five on the leaderboard. Right. So to determine a national champion, uh, to me today is is uh, you know you have got to you've just got to play stroke play, uh, and I say that loving match play. But you've got the northeast, I mean the north and south, and some of those other events you can play right. at match play. Um, last year, uh, what was Tyler Strafasi thirty something when he won the tournament? Yeah, Tyler. Tyler was not, if I remember correctly, with his stroke play portion of the North. You're talking about the North South, right? No, no, I'm talking about it at the uh, USAM. At the USAM. Um, yeah. Give me one second. We're going to look it up because I want to make sure I include this in the episode. So hold on one second. I'll tell you right now. But my point was, and I mean, he'd had a hell of a summer. He's like, he, yeah, he was had a really good summer. I mean, he yeah. was a very deserving winner. No question about that. He was the, the other, forty. He was the forty-first seed. Yeah, and hey, and, well, and well, Ollie, but more importantly, yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at world ranking. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Vinny. Yeah, I thought you were talking. Oh, he, yeah. No, he was like 35th. Those other three kids are in the semis. I don't think were in the top 300 in the world. No, they weren't. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking. So about, yeah. you know that tells you that if it'd been stroke play, I don't think all four of them would have probably been there. Uh, no, no, you're, you're taking not- taking nothing away from any of them. I'm not, you know, I'm not. Uh, demeaning in any way their performances but it just it goes to the fact that there are that many great players at, at that age and 
you know, you would define them a lot better than 72 holes to stroke point. Sure. No, you're, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, conversation in theory, but you're a hundred percent right. I can't tell you how many times you'd have these guys that, you know, finish maybe top 10 in the stroke play and they're playing some fantastic golf and, you know, a couple bad holes and a couple, some guy goes on a run and that's it. You're, you're oh, yeah. that's it, it. No, it's unlike, unlike the NCAA basketball, it's not unusual for a 64 seed to beat a one seed. Right. Yeah. You know. No, you're 100% right. So um, you mentioned match play, and, you know, I definitely need to ask you about this, uh, you know, incredible uh, record you have uh, at at the Walker Cup. You you played on four teams. You're a captain of the 93 team in Interlochen in in Minnesota. And, I mean, you're you're basically sitting at number five in all-time points for the U.S., and really you're behind guys that have played in – more Walker Cups than you. So, I mean, you're sitting behind Sigal and Campbell and, and we met and, and Billy Joe Patton. Um, and you, you're doing a lot of homework. Well, you know, it's easy. Good to, for, it, good, no, good for you. It's easy to find information about you, man. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I got other stuff I got to roll out because I don't think people quite understand who, who I'm talking to right now. But um, you, okay, so you played in four Walker Cups and your first one is age, you're age 26. And there's kids that are going to be playing in their first one this year, and I know Akshay Batia, I think, was 17 uh, two years ago at, at Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So you're basically, when you start your Walker Cup career, you're basically the equivalent of a very young mid-amateur. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. W- when did Walker Cup become something that you actually could look forward to? I mean, you had this great career at Georgia. You're All-American there, but was it on your radar at Georgia? Uh I would say, I mean, you know, I, I made the, I made the, not that the all American means anything. A lot of it's politics, like so many things. But I finished second in the NCAA my senior year at Georgia. Um, it, it was at Stanford. Murphy won. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, to be honest with you, uh, Ben, I, I knew, I, I knew I was pretty good by then. Sure. Um, you know, I'd had some good, I mean, I'd had some decent finishes in some other tournaments. I don't think it in 66, I hadn't won the, I hadn't won the, uh, Southern amateur yet. I'm 60. Really. When I got to law school is when I started, you know, winning golf tournaments, <laughs> uh, strangely enough, yeah. uh, I guess I was so happy to be out of class that I could, uh, relax. But, yeah, um, I, uh. You know, I, I mean, I thought Walker Cup was realistic. I was an on-site medalist in the U.S. Amateur in 64. Um, you know, I had some other good college success. So it wasn't like I, you know, it wasn't like I didn't think I could play with my peers anyway. Right. Um, and then, of course, finishing second at the U.S. Amateur in 67 puts you on, and I won a Southern Amateur that same year, puts you sort of on there. I mean, USGA has to look at you yeah, whether you're... I want to or not. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I, I knew I probably at that point probably deserved to at least have good consideration. Um, and, you know, and then finishing second again in the Amateur in 68, uh, and, uh, you know, having one of one of Southern Amateur and a couple other things, uh, I, uh, I, you know, I, I knew, I knew I was, you know, I knew I was good enough to make a team. Now, whether or not I got there was a 
was a different question. And I'd made a commitment. I'd made a commitment when I went to law school that I wasn't going to turn pro. So yeah. all of a sudden, if you really think about it, and the reason I sort of quit playing competitively when the USGA snubbed me one year is the only goals you had if you weren't going on the tour was to make those international teams. Yeah. Um, so that's what you, what you, uh, really strive for. And that's why you, you know, that's why you kept your game sh- sharp. And that's why, you know, that's why I tried to play a lot of competition in a concentrated period. Cause I thought, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I could tell from August one till the end of the U S Amateur, I would pick up 10 to 15 yards off the tee. Okay. And that was just reps. Right. That was just you know stretching, stretching the muscles in the back of, in the back of your left shoulder more and more. Right. Um, it wasn't anything. Yeah, it wasn't lifting weights. We, <laughs> I wasn't on a, I wasn't on a, uh, on a protein shake diet or anything. <laughs> you were not the Bryson DeChambeau of amateur golf. No, no, no sir. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it was it was just something that you had a goal. I mean, that was sort of my. I mean, my, my goal as a kid playing golf, and I started playing golf when I was five, so it wasn't like I you know hadn't been around it forever. Sure. Um, but my goal uh, early on was to play in the Masters, and that was my number one goal. Um, so you know, you uh, even back then people set goals. Yeah, you have to, you have to. And, and yep. I'm looking, and I'm looking at this, this. I guess you know, like now when you look at the Walker Cup teams, I mean, I think it was probably in the. I think it was probably around, actually, I think it was right around 93 when you were captaining the team. I think that was one of the last years that there was actually a mix of mid-ams and college kids where you yep. had, where you still had the Mitch Vogas and the John Harris, and you still had a couple of those guys knocking around. But now it's really just college kids, and then they you know, they let Stu play with oh, the yeah. kids. But, um, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, they throw one on there just as a token. Right. And, uh, uh, but you're right, and and... and I'm thinking yeah, it sounds two, more fun. I'm thinking it sounds more fun if you had a mix of mid-ams and younger kids. I would think. Well, I think that, you know, the GB and I got, they got where they were getting beat so badly. Yeah. That they said, we don't care. We're going to try to find the best we can. And and the USGA finally, after, after we lost a bunch of times, they finally said, well, we're going to do the same thing. Yeah, you know, we're no longer gonna gonna just uh, capitulate. Um, I think it's too bad, but if you really look at it now, it's like what I said earlier. I mean, they're easily three hundred really good college players. Yeah, I mean, I watched this kid uh, Osborne play in the finals, and I mean, I never heard of the guy. I looked at him and I said, well, with all due respect to Tyler Strafasi, this kid's potential is unlimited. I mean, I don't know if you saw any of the amateur I was final. there. I was there. Well, God, I mean, that kid looked like he was a world beater. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful golf swing. Yeah. A lot of power. Um, you know, and, and who was he? I mean, he was number 346 in the world or something. Yeah. yeah. No, you're you're 100 percent right. He he mowed through, he mowed through a lot of people, and that match yep. was. Um, I mean, I think, uh, in fact, uh, Osborne was like I think four up through six or something ridiculous in the morning round of the final. He was like 
he was actually no, he was probably like four under par through six. He was just absolutely mm-hmm. on fire. And I was looking at him and he was looking at me and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, all right, keep <laughs> keep doing it. Well, well said. <laughs> so um, No, but I mean, you know, you look at that, I mean, somebody gets worked with him and gets him comfortable and what have you. I mean, he could be the next superstar. Who yeah, knows? You never know. They're out there. There are a lot of them. You uh you picked up Ten and a half points for the United States in your four Walker Cups, and I know you had, you know, you had nineteen sixty nine in Milwaukee, and um, then you know got to play the you know the Country Club, uh, you know at at Brookline. I mean, those are two great American uh, spots or, or, or venues for the Walker Cup when you're here in the states. But it doesn't get any better than than seventy one and seventy five. You're at the old course in St Andrews. I mean, you got to be kidding me. I mean, how lucky are you to be, you know, a kid from Virginia and you're you're going over to play the old course twice? Yep, yep. No, that was that was pretty pretty special. And I'll mean, be be honest with you, the first year we played in seventy one, which we lost by the way. Yeah. Um, I don't know how because we had a lot of mid ams that weren't very good. Probably I was one of them. Um, but uh, um. I couldn't stand that golf course first time I played. I'm it. glad. Okay, good because that's what I was going to ask. Okay. I mean, I thought it was the most, you know, unfair, whatever you want to say. In fact, I think ABC was doing USGA stuff then. Yeah. And I think it was the uh, first time they televised the Walker Cup, <laughs> and they're asking us questions. And the question was, well, having uh, played now for, this was during the practice, right? having played four or five rounds at the old course, tell us what, what, you, uh, what, you, what you think of the old course. <laughs> oh, no. And I said, mm, okay. Now, do you, do, and I'm not very good at lying about stuff like that. But I said, well, I'm going to take the very diplomatic route. I said, well, it's a, certainly a, a, a unique venue, and <clears throat> if Bobby Jones said that he had only one round of golf to play in his life, it would always be at the old course. It must be a wonderful course. That's, uh, that was my answer. That's uh, well done. <laughs> you, you, uh, you, I'd like to present you with the Best Actor Award. <laughs> But, you know, it's funny. We got over there four years later, and you could feel why we went back, because they beat us. They said, Americans don't like this course. We can play, play them here again. Yep. Um, and we played our first practice round, and I hit a couple of shots that I thought were wonderful. It ended up in those little pot bunkers, and I was steaming. And I got into bed that night, and I said, you know, you got to be a dumb son of a bitch. I said, Gotta be, it can't be this bad. And I started dissecting holes. And the next morning, I said, shoot, this golf course is a piece of cake. All you do is hit it left all day long. And, you know, from then on, I was not only was I comfortable, I thought it was one of the easiest golf courses I ever played. There you go. Just got another, I, just got another joint. Know, I mean, there are only about, you know, two or three holes you can't hit it left on. So it really, really was amazing. I mean, it, it changed my whole attitude about it. I said, you know, you, you're letting the golf course beat you, and, and it's doing a hell of a job of it. Yeah. Well, you yep. got you got to know where to miss it. You just got to yep. know where to miss it. Exactly right. You uh, exactly right. so you mentioned this like 
this you do these kind of like these summer runs of you know the northeast and sunny hannah and usam and you just really kind of compound your game but in 75 you're there for you're you're there to play the the walker cup and i guess that's probably held at the end of may and then you you go over to to royal liverpool and you win i'm guessing was this your only appearance in the british amateur no, I played in it in 71 Okay. Um, after the Walker Cup, uh, and I went back in 76 to defend. Okay, uh, so you won. I, you, felt, I, felt, right. I felt like I, you know, something I had to do. Sure. I mean, I just, sure. So you win it in but, 75 at Hoylake. Um, that's got to be just an incredible, like, what were you there for, about a month, or at least three weeks? Uh, we were there, I would, yeah, we were there a good three weeks, I'd say, yeah. That's mm-hmm. uh that's a nice stretch. And and you are and, yep. and gosh, I, I can't help myself of dropping uh little little nuggets here, but you uh you sir, you're the only man that's ever won the US Am and the British Am and the US Senior Am. All you're the only one that's ever done all three. Uh to to date anyway, and I probably stay that way because none of these kids are gonna ever play in uh probably two of them. No, you're right. You're <laughs> yeah, right. You're not gonna see them around. Why now? I know that we can get it. We can go down a, a, a rabbit hole of how much money is in professional golf, and and as you said, you're you're you know running your company Pro Zinc, and you're representing players like you know Tom Kite and Watkins and Davis Love the Third and Meg Mallon, and and I mean we can go down a rabbit hole of just the money, but like I actually looked up like for example in 2019 on the Corn Ferry Tour, you got a guy that made 125 thousand dollars that included a win. And I don't want to say that 125,000 is not a lot of money because it is, but it's a lot different to make 125 when you're sitting in a desk doing a nine to five job as opposed to being on the road playing 25 tournaments and paying your instructor and your travel expenses. Oh yeah, it's a lot different there. I, I almost think that some of these young kids don't understand that there's a just incredible world waiting for them to be a career amateur because it can open so many doors where you can make a very nice living and, and get to do these incredible things. Do, do you think that they're just missing the boat? I think, uh, you know, the, the, the lure, and I think some of it is financial and God only knows being how much of it might be parent driven. I hate to say it, yeah, but you've been around it. I mean, if you went to us Amateur, you saw some of it, um, you know, some of these parents have hitched their their wagon to that star, and they're you know they're AJGA from age twelve, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other side of it is, you know, if a kid's had some limited success, somebody at his club, or some friend of his father's, or somebody with more money than sense, says, "Oh yeah, I'll give you fifty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Go out there and play." Well, you know, that's, that's like take it for some of them. It's like a vacation. Yeah. I mean, they don't think much about getting better. They just think, God, I can go out and drink beer and chase girls and play golf all day. Um, you know, the ones that, that are really good mo- and most, and most of them, I'm used using the, I'd say the small minority sure. when I'm talking that way, but a lot of them just, they don't have any motivation at all. They got a free, you know, a free ride to go play golf till finally somebody pulls a plug on them. Yeah, I, I see a lot of these, you know, 
I see some of the young kids, they, they make it and they get out on tour, but then I hear these stories or see guys that are like 34 and still chasing it on the Corn oh. Ferry Tour. And I'm thinking like, you know, if they make it, that's that's great. But if they don't, like, uh, you know, do you turn around? I mean, what do you put on a resume when you're 35 years old? Well, I mean, I don't know. What, what offerings do you have? You're exactly right. I mean, and most of them aren't suited to, be, to become a club pro. No. Because they wouldn't have the patience to deal with some of the membership. Yeah. You know, it would take them about five seconds to say what they really thought, and that'd be the end of that job. Well, and you're right. I mean, you know, how many Jim Hermans are we going to ever see that's, again? That's exact. That's a great example. A guy that's yeah. won twice, yeah. and, and it, that's great. And I'm thrilled for a guy like Jim Herman. But how many, like you said, there's a lot of Jim Hermans waiting to happen that are never going to happen. No, absolutely not. I've always said, you know, if they haven't seen pretty good success by 30, yeah, they need, they need to go look at a different career. You've, um, you've been on the executive board of, you know, the Southern Golf Association, Virginia State, and, you know, you know, what do you think it would take to maybe grow the amateur? I know grow the game is a really popular phrase, but I'm talking about growing it in a competitive way where it's not just you know, first, you know, first tee's great, PJ Junior Golf League, that's great. But I'm talking about where people are really trying to make it to a USAM or make it to a Sunny Hand or play in competitive events. How do we? Uh, well, you know, we've tried, and, and you know, you know, Alan well. Alan's yeah. really tried hard with that AGA uh, to try to encourage people to, you know, to get back to playing stuff like the Concession Cup as a goal. Etc. But I, you know, I just think I think the cat, the uh, horse is too far out of the barn. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, these kids now, every one of them, it's no different than the basketball players or the football players. They're told from the time they're fifteen how wonderful they are, right? And what a great opportunity they've got, and how much money's out there, etc., etc., etc. And that's the whole focus. I mean, you know, you mentioned Batia. I mean, he never had any intention of going to school. No. You know, and a lot of these kids are going a couple of years, and that's it. Um, you know, it's not. And and a lot of them that, that are going, they're staying there four years, are probably, you know, they probably got enough uh, grade points to be a sophomore. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, you know they're not they're not they're not going to school very hard. Sure. Um, I'm and, just... and I mean good. I mean good kids. You don't find a better kid anywhere than Jordan Spieth. Yeah. What did he go? Two years? One year? Yeah. One or two? I think he went two. He won. I think he yeah. won the national championship in his last year at Texas. But yeah, I think it was just two mm-hmm. years. I, I'm guessing by the listening to you talk, I couldn't, I don't think I could imagine you starting a company like ProZinc uh, nowadays. It would depend. Um, it would depend on how it got started. Um, you're probably right. I probably wouldn't because the guys are so different. I mean, we had, you know, tremendous loyalty with our clients. I mean, Kite was a client of ours from, 1974 until we closed it or, or actually I walked away anyway in 2007. Um, Gary Coke, I still do Gary Coke's uh, TV contract work. Yep. Uh, I still do Lanny Watkins TV contract work. 
Uh, I'm not telling you that I'm doing the greatest job in the world, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, we're friends and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, there's a, still a lot of loyalty there. Um, you know, today it's interesting. Uh, you know, Michael Bamberger. Yes, I do. I was talking to Michael yesterday. He was actually calling to thank me for introducing him to somebody. And, uh, he had just gotten off the phone with this, uh, Amelia Migliacci, or yeah, whatever how yeah. you pronounce her name, he interviewed her yesterday, and he said that she said she had absolutely no interest in being a professional golfer. You're 100% right. And he said, well, why? And she said, because all professional golf is is about me, 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 me. says, I enjoy my friends, and I want when I do stuff, I want to collaborate with people. I want to work with people. Now, you know, does that hold up forever? Who knows? But it was a damn refreshing comment. I remember them saying that during the Augusta yeah. National Women's Amateur. Yeah. And I just, I was thrilled to hear it. I just was like, yes, we need, we need more thing. We need more of those. We need more career amateurs. Yep. Well, we need, we need some of these people to get a little smarter and realize they can, you know, I mean, we know a lot of people that made a pretty good living playing amateur golf yeah there's i mean a, bill you go back to the you know the billy joe Patton selling uh selling lumber and dale morey selling uh, furniture fixtures and dean beeman selling insurance and jay sigel selling insurance etc cetera, etc cetera. they didn't they didn't sell all those products because they knew their products better than everybody else uh, I'm I'm guessing golf had something to do with it, is what you're saying. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, the, it's how I got into the you know, it's how I got into the to our business. Uh, I had a number of young kids come to me and ask me if I would help them while I was actually in the investment business. <laughs> it was funny because they say, you know, you're a lawyer and you're you're in the financial world and you must. I, I said, I want to say, I don't know a damn thing more than you do. <laughs> You know, and we, quite honestly, to some extent, we were the beneficiary of the fact that Mark McCormick's group charged so damn much money that people said, I just don't feel right paying them that much money. So, you know, they had a lot to do, but that's really how we got into business, just because I, when I was playing in the Porter Cups and the and the uh, Eastern Amateurs and the U.S. Amateurs, that's the way I got to know a lot of these young young players. I mean, the Kites and the um, you know, the Alan Miller, which probably the name doesn't mean a thing to you, but he was a hell of a player, um, who never did pan out. Um, you know, I mean, I played on the Walker cup team in 75 with Peyton Burns and Coke and, and we signed all three of them. There you go. And that really put us on the map. Um, you know, all of a sudden, somebody said, "Hey, these people must know something. They're signing some pretty good players." So, you you mentioned. I mean, I know that you worked with Tom Kite, and I don't know why this popped into my head. There is a very famous photo of Tom Kite doing some sort of a a workout uh, thing in Golf Digest, where he's basically just wearing a pair of gym shorts and he's hooked up to a machine. Were you with him when that yeah. thing happened? <laughs> No, but I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's burned in my head. I really wish it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a pretty sight. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there's a great example. Again, digressing, uh, Ben, but 
Now, there's a kid who, you think about it, Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw grew up together. Uh-huh. Uh, ben Crenshaw was probably one of the most God-given, gifted golfers that ever came down the pike. Good athlete, good-looking kid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Kite was kind of a geeky-looking, glasses-wearing son of a, you know, an IRS uh, employee. Right, right. And quite honestly, if you put them together, Kite's career was at least twice as good as Crenshaw. Agreed. And Kite worked his ass off. I mean, he worked so hard. When he went on the tour in 72 or 3, yeah. 2, I think, might have been 1, he had the worst golf swing you've ever seen. And that's when you had to be in the top 60 to be exempt for the next year. Right. And he spent the whole year trying to change his golf swing and still made the top 60. That's putting work. Um, in. I mean, he was just, he was, he was the hardest. He was the last guy, first guy on the practice tee and last guy off the practice tee every day. I, I was at a Champions Tour event in Naples two years ago, and mm-hmm. guess who's on the range beating balls? Uh, at Abs- absolutely. Tom Kite. I'm just like, really? Yep. I'm like, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised. Absolutely. He never, I mean, he he still to this day will work, he'll still work hard, not as hard, I'm sure, as he used to. But, sure. You know, he, it was, I mean, he, to me, is one of the greatest overachievers oh, in the yeah. history of the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, there was that one article or someone was like, well, this guy can't make a layup in basketball. And I think his response was, well, that's not my profession. I, my profession, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not a basketball player. You're right. I'm, I may not be able to do that, but I, I can, you know, I can hit a fade, uh, you know, uh, nine times out of 10 and, and hit nine balls in a, in a basket. So perfect. I'm not a basketball yeah, player. I'm like, look at me. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I, can whip, I can whip Michael Jordan's ass playing golf. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's, it's like you got to know your role. This is my role. Yep. I'm, I'm in the Hall of Fame. Thanks. Um, That's funny. <laughs> um, so uh, we, uh, gosh, I, I feel like you and I can get if if you and I were sitting together with 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 a glass of wine, we could probably go four or five hours. But we're not going to do that today. But um, I got okay. So so let's let's talk a little bit about Seminole and and obviously the 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 Walker Cup is going to be there in a few weeks and you know you're a member at the club and I guess you know we could talk a lot about the the course and I'll ask you a couple of things about the golf course but I have to ask you just about being a member there because the more I think about it you know I talked to Mr. Ford and you know he told me about the skins games and the club is all about the golf you know there's no fancy dinners or breakfast buffets the the pool got filled in and there's no ten- there's no tennis <laughs> yeah. i mean it's just it is just golf no know? it's it's a pure golf club yeah no question about that but you're, to be a member there like the people you're surrounded by that have these resumes that are you know really in the same neighborhood as you you have other walker cuppers and walker cup captains and winners of this I, I'm guessing this is one of the only clubs that you really want to be at just because of the caliber of players where it's all about the golf. Well, that's, that's of course the way I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I, I was fortunate enough, Barry Van Gerbig, who I didn't know that well. I knew him some, I knew his brother Mickey, uh, better. Um, you know, when Barry came in, in, uh, I guess right around 1990, late eighties, early nineties, 
And he said, I want people to know more about Seminole. And I want, you know, some good players to be able to experience it. And I'm going to try to get some good players to join. And uh, he, he asked me in, I think, 92 or 3, 90, 92, I guess, because, I, yeah, I was 49 years old. Um, so I want you to join Seminole. And I said, well, Barry, I'd love to. I love the place because I'd been lucky enough to come down and play in some of the member guests way sure. back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I said, but quite honestly, I said, first of all, I got, you know, I got a job. I got fairly young children. And I... Uh, um, I really can't afford it. I mean, I can't afford it financially. And I said, now, if you let me, you know, mull it over for about a year or two, I, I, maybe something will change. He said, all right, I'll do that. Well, about six months later, he called me and said, now, you got to join now. <laughs> so anyway, I, that's when I joined. Uh, because I knew even back then, Ben, that you know, it was really, and I'm not a club joiner. I, mean, I basically joined. I, I belonged to a club in Virginia and a club in. I mean, technically, I belonged to two in Virginia, but one of them I helped start. So, sure, Kenlock, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, and one down here, and that's it. I don't belong to any others. Uh, I never joined any of the other clubs. I didn't have any need to. Right. Uh, but uh, Seminole is, I mean, to me, it's and not only is it a phenomenal golf course. I mean, I would put it up as, you know, I mean, if you, if you ever talk about a course you could play every day with with good people and changing conditions, I mean, there's none any better. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, you know, it is pure golf. And it's, it's uh, and I don't care what your handicap is. Uh the golf DNA is really good, and people understand that, you know, golf is not necessarily a four-hour round. It's not necessarily a four-and-a-half-hour round. There's no reason it can't be a three-and-a-half-hour round, and that's probably what they average at Seminole, and that's playing at a normal pace. Of course, you've played the golf course. Yeah. It's probably one of the easiest walking golf courses in the world. It is. It is. Because, you know, you can spit on the next tee from most greens. So uh, Yeah, and then there's, there's a couple – inclines but for the most part just like florida yeah. it's relatively flat so oh no it's a, I, I used to say all the time i said in my next life i want to come back as a caddy at seminole <laughs> you know three and a half hour rounds you get you get paid 250 dollars when you finish and you're walking on flat ground uh that and, and you don't have to walk very far that's no. uh, that's not a that's not a bad gig, you know. Like, yep. like and the thing that was, I thought was so interesting, like the last time I was there, I saw you on the putting green, and you were actually working on something. And don't say you weren't, because I saw some tees in there. You were working on something, <laughs> and I was just like, that makes sense at Seminole, but I'm thinking at at other clubs someone would see like, yeah, what's that old guy doing over there in the putting green? What's he working on? Why is he working on yeah. his game? But at Seminole, yeah, you would see a guy like Vinny Giles doing some putting drills. That makes perfect sense. Well, you, I tell you, we spend, I mean, as I say, a lot of it is nothing but bullshit, but we spend an awful lot of time on that back practice and iron range, uh -huh. you know, hitting balls, talking, but talking, you know, a lot of it's talking golf. It's talking about golf clubs and shabs and you know what did you see about this out of the other thing right. so it, it it really is and, and they are there are a lot of good 
good and knowledgeable players. There. Oh yeah. So, yeah. You know, it makes a difference. Um, I mean, you mentioned Buddy Marucci. Hell, he's usually, when he goes to practice, he's usually got at least 40 clubs in his cart. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. I got to talk I mean, to him next. That's perfect. You know, you never seen so many golf clubs. I mean, he got a set of TaylorMade and a set of Callaway and a set of Titleist and, you know, five drivers and 12 shavs. And, <laughs> oh, I'm going to pick on him about he's that. A, Don't he's, a, he's, a, he's, the world's, he's the world's biggest tinkerer. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, there's a lot of people that I could probably ask, you know, what are the keys to success around Seminole? But, um, let me see if I got this right. Um, is it true that you shot better than your age at Seminole? My, the first time I ever shot my age was, uh, well, I was, I shot 64 at Seminole when I was 65. (laughs) Oh my God. And that was the first time I ever shot my age. Okay. So Please tell me, I mean, who are you playing with that day and, and do that? Are they still friends with you? I was playing with, I don't remember all four. I was playing with Barry Van Derby. I was playing with Jack Bartman. And I do not remember who the fourth was. 64. At I still, I still got that golf ball I, around here somewhere. I hope you still do. What? I don't know where the hell it is. Well, but. I'm sure you will find it somewhere. What? Okay. Now I know that the kids that are going to be there in a couple weeks hit it, you know, a country mile. And oh yeah. It's a, it's a little different game. It's a little different. I understand that. But still, as most people know anything about Seminole, they know it's a, it's a second shot golf course and you need to position yourself correctly. Um, you know, if any of these kids on the U.S. team, and please, I hope they do come talk to you and ask you for advice. You know, what what would you say to the U.S. kids that are looking to to keep the cup? I would say one, just what you said. Go go ask some people. You know, get a good caddy, etc. And you know, they have to their credit, Ben. They've been up here playing some. Okay. Uh, they had five or six of them down here last week. Uh, Hagestat's been here a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, Perfect. Well, you know, he's, he doesn't have to do anything else anyway. <laughs> yes! <laughs> uh, I mean, that that's a, that's a guy that can afford to stay amateur. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And still, claim, and still claims to be working. I don't know what he's working on. It's, uh, these are, these are questions that maybe we'll just never get answers to, but that's okay. Yep. Um, but he's a good guy. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> and he listens to this podcast, which is why I'm laughing so hard. Oh, good. Good. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I just, I think they've got to learn to, to, uh, so much is going to depend on the weather. I yeah. hope to God we have 15 mile an hour winds at least. Okay. So you want to see mean, at least a two club wind. Yeah, I, no, I'd say, I mean, 15 to me is a club, maybe okay. a club and a half, but okay. I mean, I don't want to see it blow 30 cause that's no fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the golf ball won't even stay on the green if they, you know, they won't even be able to cut the greens the way they want to, if it looks like that. Right. But it, Seminole needs wind. I mean, you, you know, you put your finger right there so long. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of strategy that I don't necessarily, I've watched some of these kids play and I wonder our six hole, for instance, um, you know, they get back there and hit three and four irons off the tee and leave themselves a 160 yard shot. Now that green 
is not easy to hit with a wedge. So to me, I mean, they they are some of them ought to be challenging that uh, challenging that bunker. I don't at, at the you know at, in, in the fairway that's at what probably two ninety. Yeah, I mean they'll be right. trying to they ought to be trying to hit it two seventy five. So all they have at that green's a wedge. Yep. Yeah, you know, I I mean it's a big fairway. It's not like it's a you know the fairways as you know at Seminole are, are very generous. Yeah. Yeah, they, I they mean, really their are. holes, you know, the first hole, assuming you've got the winds you think you will, which is going to be out of the southeast in mid-May, uh, you know, they might be able to drive it on that green. Why not? You know, yeah. why not drive it down in a greenside bunker or something? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, then you've got hold, you've got other holes that, uh, you know, They've got to. They've got to figure out. I mean, I watch them on there 10. There is the legend, and they hit three irons off the tee, and they leave themselves. Uh, yeah, depending on wind conditions, but they leave themselves a, a seven iron, eight iron shot to the green. Instagram, Again, I'd challenge that that water a little bit more. The range where I can hit a nine iron wedge to that green. Um. They just there's some really some some very strategic uh, tee shots from a from a yardage standpoint. The greens they've got to learn how to where to miss a ball. Um, you know, there's some of those shots you don't take. I, the twelfth hole is I think one of the greatest short holes in the world. And I don't care where they drive it. If you put the pin in the front right corner and you miss hit your shot a little bit, you might not finish that hole. Yeah. No, you're, you get, you're right. You know, you get one of those bunkers, you try to get a little cute, you either leave it in or you hit it a little too hard, it goes back in the other bunker. And, uh, you know, and, and again, I've, I've never been a, a, a believer that in match play, you play the golf course 100%. Um, and Seminole's a perfect example of you know watching what your opponent does. Yeah. Um, you know you can you can play a you can play defense and offense on that golf course very very easily. But I think most of it's getting used to it. I mean, I think if uh, you know if they if they get in good practice sessions and and realize that again they'll have a weather forecast. Yeah, they'll give them all that information. Sure. But, you know, if, if they realize what kind of wind they're going to have, et cetera, preparation is going to be as important as anything else. That, uh, that is very well said. And, and you know, I've had, I've had numerous conversations and I've been thinking about it myself. And I guess selfishly, like, I mean, obviously I'm an American, so I'm rooting for the U.S. team. But really the main thing I think I'm also rooting for is, look, you know, amateur golf is not – televised very often you know we get yep. the usam and i know golf channel is is handling the college game very well but still it's a handful of events and then it's the national championship but you know amateur golf is going to be on a worldwide spotlight i think i think it's a it's a regular pga tour event that week and it's not a major and this is going to be what people are looking at and and i'm thinking to myself yeah i i don't want seminole to be a pushover um, but I also don't want a four club wind where the best amateurs in the game, yeah. people are, you know, the, Look, the layman's yeah. going to be like, these kids are terrible. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I, uh, it's funny you mentioned it because I look at, uh, what I saw because I did watch the latter part of that, uh, 
ladies' uh, Augusta tournament. Right, right. And it was terrible. I mean, it was just awful. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're making doubles and triples. And, and uh, I mean, as I said, it looked like, yeah, they were just throwing up all over themselves. It was sad. Yeah. And I mean, that little girl we mentioned earlier, uh, Amelia Migliacci, yep. you know, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, but, but uh, I mean, she had to not even, when she walked off the 18th grade, she didn't, wasn't even thinking about playing any more holes of golf. Yeah. You know, there were people out there two under and one under and even all over the place behind them. And none of them could, and I mean, gosh, if you really think about it, the two that were in the playoff both hit the bunker off the tee and hit the lip coming out and got it up and down from 80 yards. Yeah. You know? No, you're, you're crazy. 100% yeah. right. Yeah. So what are your, what are your plans for, um, you know, I'm going to be there for the Walker cup. Um, I'm, I'm as much as, ex- as I'm excited to see the, uh, the play, I'm also excited to see who I'm going to bump into in the in the gallery what are your plans for for the walker cup are you going to be there both days uh, uh yeah we're gonna uh normally we would go back early we're gonna stay and go back uh, right after the walker cup and and uh we'll be right in the same gallery you're in that's uh <laughs> i have i have no rough fact i don't think any of the ex-players or captains other than maybe spider miller really have any official role at all Spider's involved with something. I'm not even sure what, but no, I've, I've never been asked to do anything. I don't think uh, Buddy has. I don't think uh, anybody else has that I'm aware of. So, so you're just going to be, be, we, be rooting. Be, yep, yep, which suits me just fine. And, uh, and you know, as I say, I mean, you've seen the, you know, the progression of, of courses for the Walker Cup. It's pretty neat to keep going back to these old, you know, well-known places. I mean, you know, and after this, they go to Cypress Point. And, you know, they've been to been to Pine Valley, and they've been to about every place you can think of. Yeah. Um, but I think um, I don't know if you went to the Walker Cup at National. Uh, I haven't. My first one was two years ago at Hoy Lake, and this is my gotcha. second. And then I, I'm already looking forward to the 23 at St Andrews, and um, and then 25 at uh, at Cypress. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's just I mean, I went to the one at uh, the one at National, and I mean that's really why we have having this one at Seminole. Um, How so? I, I, well, I spent a lot of time with Jimmy Dunn okay. up at, at during the uh, Walker Cup in '13 at National, and uh, I mean he was so blown away by the whole scene that I think he almost immediately went to Mike Davis and said, you know, we'd, we'd like to like to uh, have Seminole considered to, to host a Walker Cup. Um, the one at National, Ben, was, I mean, I've never seen it. It was, I, if anybody will ever outdo it, I don't know how they can do it. Uh, I mean, it was perfect weather. Um, Bush 43 was there for three days, did a nice talk at the, at the uh, opening ceremonies, et cetera. Played golf with uh, some of the ex-Walker couples at uh, Shinnecock the day before. Wow. wow. You know, it was just, uh, it was uh, this word that these kids have fallen in love with, surreal. Um, 
you know, it was that kind of experience. I mean, it was just, just spectacular. You just couldn't, you know, you couldn't paint a prettier picture. Yeah. And that really, I mean, that got Jimmy's juices flowing fast. And I think that, I mean, we actually had, we had a commitment from the USGA. That event was in August. I think we had a commitment from the USGA by September or at the, at the latest October. Wow. I mean, that's how quickly it evolved. And, and, I'm, and I'm guessing that the membership at Seminole have just have to be just over the moon thrilled about this Walker cup. I mean, this, it's one thing, cause I also think, you know, when I think back to like, you know, a you know, like an Oakmont or an Oakland Hills or even a Shinnecock when they get a major championship. Yeah. The membership's really excited and proud of it, but but for the membership at Seminole with so many guys that have actually played in a Walker Cup, it just yep. has to have a different feel. Instead of just beating your chest saying, yeah, my club has this, you're like, no, no, this this is all coming full, full circle. I played in 75, and now I get to walk in the gallery while it's played at my home club. Yeah, and it's kind of giving the, you know, it's probably kind of, again, like the match with McElroy and Dustin Johnson. It's right. given giving the world a little feeling this place isn't quite as exclusive as we thought it was. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that was a lot of what Barry Van Gerbig felt. He said, I don't want people to think this is a, for lack of a better term, a snob club. Right. You know, it's a, it's a golf club. Um, so I know, I think it, it'll, it'll be great. As I say, I hope the, I hope the weather's cooperative. Although I will say, and you probably, well, you probably saw it at least on television since you didn't have any spectators, but the, you know, the tailor-made match that the, the guys played in, uh, in the summer, um, you know, they didn't play that very well at all. No, they didn't. Now, granted, they weren't grinding. No. Um, you know, their hearts weren't really in it, but, but still, that golf course didn't play that hard that day, and, and they hit... I think they hit six or seven out of uh, 16 par threes. So, you know, it's not easy. Nope. Nope. And uh, you put your finger right on it. It's a, it's a second shot golf course. Yeah. Totally. Well, Vinny, this was, this was a real treat. Um, I'm so glad that we got to spend some time talking uh, just about your career and your thoughts on, on the amateur game, you know, honored to speak to a lifetime amateur and uh, I will be seeing you in a few weeks, sir, at Seminole for the Walker Cup. I appreciate the time, and thanks for stopping by the back of the range. Yeah, the pleasure was all mine, and we will have a good time in, at Seminole in a few weeks. And there he is, the legend, Vinny Giles. Thanks so much to him for joining me here on the first episode of the Seminole Sessions here at the back of the range. Make sure you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay subscribed, and we'll see you next time here at the back of the range.